I want us to continue on our study of this concept of, as we saw in Ezra, <coughs> excuse me, of the temple, its foundation, the altar, and then how that represented to us, <coughs> excuse me, the body of Christ and how we are to how we were to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And now Jesus is that foundation, and he, his teachings are that foundation. But Jesus also said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And his teachings weren't just about principles; they were about him as a person. And that Jesus needs to always be tethered and rooted in these principles. And that's what he did when he was on earth. He always pointed to himself. He said, believe in me. He said, trust in me. Just don't believe the things that I'm saying. Just don't forgive. Realize that through the cross, he would be able then to forgive us if we choose to believe in him. Everything then in scripture then points to this person of Jesus who is rooted and tethered, and all of these principles are rooted and tethered to Jesus himself. So I want us to continue on with that, except now we're going to move from the temple concept in Ezra to the concept of the city of Jerusalem, because this is what Nehemiah is all about. The story of Nehemiah is about building this wall that had fallen, that the enemies around 450, 440 B.C., <clears throat> had attacked Jerusalem, and they had destroyed and even burned much of the, the walls. Now, the walls were made of stone, and some of the stones were charred, but it's the gates, the gates of wood that caught on fire. So now there's no more gates. Anyone and everyone can come in and out. The stones have been pulled down. And I want us then to see, at least this morning, how, or rather, what this city is, and what is this wall? I mean... In Nehemiah, it's a physical wall, but now as we study it under the New Covenant with New Testament eyes, what is this wall that is around this city? So to do that, I want us to realize that um, I, I want to give you a, a, a truth here as we tether it to Jesus, as you'll see how we do that. And that is, as we look around today, we're going to see, just within two weeks, we're going to be having an election. And I want us to see that this is more than just an election. And I'm not going to be, I, I want to suggest that we step back and that we realize that this is more than just uh, two parties. And, and, and obviously there are other parties involved in some battle against one another. I want us to see beyond the physical and I want us to see a spiritual battle. I want us to see that there is a spirit of Antichrist, but this spirit of Antichrist is at wars against the kingdom of God can actually be found on both sides here. This is not just Republican, Democrat, and various other parties. This battle goes far beyond that. We always want to characterize the other side and demonize them. But here's the truth. We are challenged by Scripture to see past that, to have spirit eyes, to see far more than just something that's physical, but something that's spiritual. And I want to do that today. I want us to realize that at the heart of all of that plays out in human history has to do with Jesus himself and his kingdom. Now, that translates into physical battles that we have, and I understand this. And so... My, my, my challenge is, let's look past those physical battles, because truly the spirit of Antichrist falls on both sides. Maybe one side is a little bit more vocal about it, but 
truth is, our battle in the kingdom of God is far more than physical, it's spiritual. So to do that, I want us to begin, and I'm only going to take a few minutes here because our main passage is going to be Zechariah chapter 2. But I want us to look at, it, I want us to look at a passage in Revelation 21 to kind of set this up. Because again, in Nehemiah, we see a physical city, we see a physical wall, but as we move into the New Testament, it goes beyond that. And I believe that um, passages like, let me get my bearings here, passages like Hebrews chapter 12, and we looked at that already, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Again, both of these texts talk about a spiritual city of Jerusalem, a spiritual Mount Zion, and we're challenged then to see a kingdom in those passages. I just want to look at one other passage in Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation 21, starting with verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And here's my question. What is this city? Is it a literal city? And, and I'm going to step on some toes right now, and I realize that it is very common in the body of Christ to see this city as a very literal city. I want to challenge that idea. And, and as we look at it from a different perspective, I think we're going to see some implications for what we're going to discover in Zechariah chapter 2, which is a prophecy about the kingdom of God to come. Here is the holy city. It is the, the new Jerusalem. It was in heaven. It's coming to earth. And he, she, the city is described as a bride, beautifully dressed, adorned. Mm. When a bride is dressed, does she dress in rags? Of course, she's dressed in white to represent her virginity. It represents, she, she's usually dressed with jewelry maybe even a tiara, depending on what nation you're from. But she's beautifully dressed, beautifully adorned, and she represents beauty to her husband, in this case, to Jesus. Now skip down just a few verses, only a few verses, to, to verse 9. Now I want to pick up what the angel is now saying to John. It says, One of the seven angels, who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, John, me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of, the ve of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, this, it goes on to describe this city. But I want to suggest to you, and, and, and again, many people see this as a literal city on the new earth, and I would suggest to you that instead of a literal city, maybe he's wanting to show us a picture, a symbol, as he does the angel uh, that God does in visions to John throughout Revelation. We see many pictures, many visions, many symbols. And here, I want us to see that this city is not a literal city, but actually a picture. And that is a picture of you and of me the, in the kingdom of God, beautifully adorned. Number one, realize that the angel says, 
Come, I'm going to show you John, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He starts off with three symbols, three pictures, three metaphors. The bride, who is beautifully adorned, and so she represents beauty. Actually, that beauty, and we're going to see this later, comes from the glory of God within her. Secondly, the wife. No, the wife, a wife, represents this sense of devotion and the sense of intimacy with her husband. So I want us to see that this bride is a wife and she has an intimate relationship with who? With the lamb. Now, I'm going to suggest that this lamb is not a literal lamb. Jesus, even though John saw him as a lamb, that was a picture of Jesus that represents sacrifice. Revelation 5, the lamb that was slain so that by his blood he would purchase men from God, men for God from every tribe and language and people mm. to become a kingdom and priests to serve him and worship him. I believe that John, excuse me, the angel starts off with the bride, the wife, and the lamb. Those three pictures to already begin to tell us that this city is simply a picture. Imagine as we read further, I believe it's in verse 9 there, in which, um, let me just get my bearings straight here, okay? Yeah, um, actually, verse 16, verse 16. We see the description that the, the dimensions of this city are 12,000 stadia. Now, if we want to take that literally, 12,000 is 1,400 miles. This city is actually on the new earth, and that new earth is heaven, and it is a part of the greater cosmos, the new heavens, the new earth, in God's heaven. Okay? It would be 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. A city that's 1,400 miles high. I'm going to suggest maybe John is wanting us to understand, or the angel's wanting us to understand this isn't literal. As a matter of fact... 12,000 stadia, and that's how the NIV shares it with us, not 1,400 miles, because there's significance in the number 12 and the number 1,000. They're symbols actually throughout Revelation. I want us to just take one other concept in mind, and that's found in the next chapter. In the next chapter, we see that there is no more sin, and in verse 3, um, let me just get my, yes, verse 3 the curse has been lifted. The, there is no more curse on all of this new earth. No more sin. But look with me, if you would, in verse chapter 22, verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to eat, to, that they may have the right to the tree of life, which we read earlier in that chapter, and may go through the gates into the city. And as you look at these two chapters, 21 and 22, there is only a one-way movement through these gates. It's always in, always in. Gates are open for all to come in. The welcome of the gospel to all nations, bringing their splendor, chapter 21 says, into this kingdom. Well, it then goes on to say, verse 15, outside, Outside the gates of this city, what do we find? It says, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murders, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices 
falsehood. These people are found just outside the city gates. And my question is, if this is literal, I'm sorry, but the rest of the new earth is heaven. How can hell and the people of hell be right outside the gates? I'm going to suggest it's because this isn't a literal city. This is a picture of the kingdom of God that actually encompasses all of heaven. This is the kingdom of God. And outside the kingdom of God, where there is outer darkness, see, that's where the sexually immoral, the liars, and the idolaters and all are found. Outside the kingdom of God, outside the gates of this city, which is a picture of the kingdom of God. Now, now that we have kind of set that up and so that we realize Hebrews 12, Galatians 4, and now Revelation 21 and 22, we have a picture of the city of Jerusalem that in Nehemiah is very physical and that the wall around that city is very physical. When we now move it into the New Testament, it becomes a picture for us of the kingdom of God. And most specifically now, I want to ask, if we're going to talk about Nehemiah building this wall around this city in the New Testament, what is this wall and what is this city, okay? So let's, to do that, I want us to turn to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2 is an amazing chapter. I love it as I read through it. It is so rich with symbolism. And, and I want us to see this symbolism. I'm going to take only a minute before we ask this question, what is this wall? But we need to see different aspects of this chapter in order to grasp what we're going to be looking at and, and see how it applies to us. In chapter 2, it says there in verse 1, it says, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man, obviously an angel. We read about this angel in chapter 1. I'm not going to do that. But the man has a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, Zechariah asks, where are you going? The man answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. And I'm going to pause there for just a moment. And I want to suggest to you that whenever there is a vision like this, and an angel has a measuring line, it is to do one of two things. And we see this in both the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, specifically in Revelation, whenever the city of Jerusalem or anything is measured, it is for either to demonstrate that God is measuring it and they're going to be found lacking and God must then bring his judgment. So the first reason why Anything like a city would be measured, the possibility would be to be judged. This also goes for weighing. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, the acting king, sees writing on a wall, and it's meeny, meeny, tickle you parson, and basically Daniel interprets it, and he says, You have been weighed, O king, and been found lacking. And then he pronounces judgment. That night, the city of Babylon fell at the hands of Cyrus the Persian. It was, he was weighed and he was judged. This is a measurement, but it's not for judgment. And we'll see that in just a moment. The other reason why it would be measured, and we see this in Jeremiah 31, the city of Jerusalem is measured to be able to bring blessing, to be able to see increase 
in the city. And that's what we see in Jeremiah 1. We see God's blessing. We see how it's going to expand, not just physically, but spiritually. We see this city expanding. Do you remember in Isaiah 54, the barren woman? And the challenge was, extend your tent pegs. Open wide your, your, the, the curtains to the tent. Why? Because the tent represented Sarah, who lived in tents, and that God's people was going, here's Isaiah's prophecy, God's people was going to be welcoming in, who? It would be welcoming in lost Jews and Gentiles. For what purpose? To believe in Jesus and see the kingdom of God expand, increase, blessing. And so as we read through Isaiah 54, that's a picture of increase and expansion, blessing, favor upon God's people. So let me continue to read here, and I think we're going to see God's blessing, favor, increase as he is measuring the city. Verse 3, then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, run. Tell that young man, Zechariah, a young man here, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Verse six, come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon. Now understand this, how odd this would be, because the Jews had already come back. This isn't 539 to 537 when the Jews initially came back from Babylon. This is about 550, 540 BC. Almost 100 years later, they had already come back. It wasn't sin to live in Babylon. Daniel stayed behind. Daniel didn't go back with the Jews to Jerusalem when Cyrus the Great freed them and allowed them to go back and build the temple. He stayed behind. It wasn't wrong. But now they're being told to flee. And I'm going to suggest that this is not a challenge to the present people, Jews, living in Jerusalem, excuse me, living in Babylon. This is a prophetic word spoken into spoken about the future and about a future kingdom. And then Babylon would represent the kingdom of darkness. Come and flee from that kingdom of darkness. Let me continue on. Come, O Zion, escape you who who live in the daughter of Babylon. For that is what the Lord Almighty says. Notice there's a change here. It was the Lord or Yahweh, and now it's the Lord Almighty or Yahweh Sabaoth, which is the Lord of hosts. He's the commanding general of the army, okay? The Lord of hosts. For this is what the Lord of hosts says, or the Lord Almighty says, after he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. What a judgment, huh? Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Now, the name is changed here. It's not the Lord Almighty. It is now just simply the Lord, Yahweh, okay? 
I am coming. I will live among you. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among them and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Verse 13. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. I want us to see that there are four players, if you will, for characters that are described in this passage. There is the Lord Almighty, or Yahweh Sabaoth. There is the Lord, or Yahweh himself. There is I, or me. We see that in verses 8 through 10. And then we have you. Now, you is pretty simple. You are the Jews that are going to be coming into this uh, intimate relationship with the Father again. They're leaving Babylon, and I would suggest they're leaving the kingdom of darkness and, and coming into this new kingdom, now the city of Jerusalem. But what about Yahweh Almighty and Yahweh and I'm going to suggest to you that even though, first take, we might think that they are the same person, I'm going to suggest they're not. And, and here's why. And I would encourage you that once you spend some time in this passage and you've thought about it a little bit more than what we're going to do this morning, share this with a Jewish friend of yours. And I'm going to encourage you, show them Jesus. Now, here's how we're going to look at this. Uh, it says here in verse... Seven. It says, Come, O Zion, that is the people of God, not a literal city, the people of God, okay? Escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that instead of a semicolon after says what the Lord Almighty says, that you put a period there, not a colon. And what that's going to do is that's going to remind you that the Lord Almighty is... What is being quoted from him is not what follows, but what precedes. The Lord Almighty is the one who says, escape from the daughter of Babylon. But who then would speak verses 8 through 10? Well, it tells us at the very end of verse 10, declares the Lord. Now, here's why I'm going to suggest you do that. Look at verse 9, the very end of verse 9. See how this words, see how this reads. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Now, if this is the Lord Almighty speaking here, it's a little confusing because it would end up say, suggesting to us that the Lord Almighty is sending the Lord Almighty, me. And I need to suggest to you that me here is what is declared in verse 10. It's the Lord. I am coming. The Lord, Yahweh, is speaking. Yahweh is I. Yahweh is me. And it is Yahweh Almighty who is sending Yahweh. Now, do you see this? Now, there's implications for this that I want us to, to see and, and dig into here because it's actually the Father, Yahweh Almighty, who is sending the Son, Yahweh, for what purpose? It tells us right here. It says many nations, verse 11, many nations will be joined to Yahweh. See, he's, he's very careful in how he, how he uh, the names, the titles that he gives here. You see, many nations will be joined to Jesus. When? 
in the new covenant, in a spiritual kingdom. Because then he says, once these many nations who represent the Gentiles are joined to Yahweh, are joined to Jesus, he says, in that day, now, it's not going to be in heaven. It's not going to be when physically some of the Jews come back from Babylon. This is talking about, this is a prophecy about the Messianic age. The time in which Jesus, though he's ruling at the right hand of the Father in heaven, his kingdom is on earth. Okay? Gentiles, during the Messianic age, and that is the time that we live in, many nations will be joined to him and will become my people I will live among you. Jesus will live among his people. He will live as king in this kingdom and you will know that Yahweh Almighty has sent me. You see that the Father has sent the Son. So the Father sent the Son with a purpose. And can I just, can I just suggest something here to you? Such a beautiful passage right here in verse 8. How does he describe you? See, it's the Jews who initially are coming and joining to Jesus in this kingdom, but it's also the many nations. The Jews, the Gentiles, the church of Jesus. And how does he call them? He says, whoever touches you is touching the apple of my eye. I'm going to suggest to you that you, all of you who believe in Jesus, you are the apple of his eye. This is such a beautiful picture of Jesus saying to his bride, the wife of the lamb, you are my joy, you're my crown, you, you are everything that I love. I want us to see then, because he's the apple of, because we are the apple of Jesus's eye, that he will protect us, that he will fight for us. See, this is Jesus that's being talked about here. This is the one who is the lamb, who sacrificed himself for us, the bride. Beautifully ordained. That's why Revelation 21 describes the jewels, 12 of them, that adorn this city. The bride, the wife of the lamb. Guys, this can sometimes feel a bit awkward. But all of us, the church of Jesus, we are that bride. We are that wife in intimate relationship with the son, the lamb, who sacrificed himself, bought us with his blood in intimate relationship with him. You are the apple of his eye. You are the one that he loves so dearly, gave himself for, that now as we rally to him, he is in our midst. As we look around, all we can see is the physical. And that's because we are in a spiritual kingdom and Jesus is here very present with us. Jesus said this, where two or more are gathered, there I am in their midst. In a very tangible, present way, he is with us. In our hearts, yes, but amongst us, working in ways that we can't say. How does he do that? I want us to go back, just one verse, and I want us to look at something beautiful here. It says, number one, in verse four, it says, Jerusalem that is, the spiritual kingdom of God will be a city without walls. Now, it's going to be without walls because there's not going to be any border. There's not going to be any boundary. It's just, if, it, if we were to use in this picture walls, 
then those walls would have to be ever increasing and expanding outward. So he just says, there's no walls. Just to give us this idea of expanse, blessing, favor being poured out so that they're growing. And that it's not just going to be the people of God, but it says right here, um, it says, because of the great number of men and livestock in it. I'm going to suggest to you that the livestock, literally in the city of Jerusalem, they had livestock. Sometimes if you had a lot of livestock, you would keep them outside the city. But the livestock many times would live with the people if you lived in the city. If you had several sheep or maybe several lambs, and such, you would actually keep them on your property. You might house them actually on the first floor, believe it or not, they would do that. Or you would house them in a room that adjoins the first floor. And this, of course, when Jesus, excuse me, when Joseph and Mary came to Jerusalem, it was this type of a house that they came to. They, they stayed with the animals, not with this on the second floor where the guests would stay because there was no room for them. But they would bring these animals. And I'm going to suggest to you that these animals then represent simply the way of life in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God isn't just you and I, but it's everything that we do. It's everything that we accomplish. It's everything that we are about. It's our business. But we want to see something. It's more than this, okay? It's more than this. So we see a, a city filled with life, filled with people and all the busyness and all that we are doing as a people of God in his kingdom. It has no walls. As a matter of fact, it says that Jesus, do you see that in verse 5? I myself, and it's the Lord, it's Jesus speaking here, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord Jesus, and I will be its glory within. Let me just unpack those two things real quickly for us. Jesus being that wall of fire. Let's understand two things. As we talk about this kingdom, I don't want us to just simply see the physical or simply see the spiritual. But living in this world, it is filled with the physical. And that's so obvious. So my point is, look past the physical. There is a spiritual dynamic that we're a part of that lies behind everything that's in the natural. So let's see both of these, the physical and the spiritual. You know, in a, the physical wall of the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, it's, that wall was often called a rampart. Do you know what a rampart is? is it's a special type of wall it has a top that is very wide it generally has a stone parapet which is a wall that would be a few feet high and from the top of that wall men would defend the city so a rampart which in Isaiah 26 talks about the walls and the ramparts of Jerusalem here then, this wall is a place on which we physically defend the city. So that's the natural. That's the physical. You know, people, for us to defend what happens in the church, in the kingdom of God, there's going to be a physical element, and I'm not going to deny that. We will do something. We're going to see that in Nehemiah. We're going to literally physically do things. But we need to realize that there is a spiritual dynamic. And here, this is the emphasis of Zechariah 2. Jesus is going to be that wall of fire. Jesus is going to be the one defending the city, determining who goes in and out. 
Jesus is the one who's going to be our defense. He is going to be the one who is fighting for us. Not that we don't do anything, because that is the natural, the physical, but behind all of it, there is the spiritual. And Jesus, because we're the apple of his eye, Jesus is going to be defending us in his kingdom. He's the king defending us, that wall of fire around us. You know, several years ago, I remember uh, (coughs) just being completely caught off guard as the business was expanding. I sat down with the used car manager. He called me and two guys that were working with me into his office. And he said, Mike, I've, I've got some bad news. I want you to know I really enjoy the work. I was a, I'm a painter. And he said, I really enjoy the work that you're doing and, and you're valuable to us. But I just got word from the this automotive group and, and this particular dealership was part of a large automotive group of 12 to 15 other car dealerships. And those in the main office told me that your company is not on their preferred vendor list, so you can't do any work for us. They've already determined there's there were probably two or maybe three paint companies to service all of these accounts, which is a huge amount of work. I, I did a couple of the accounts, and by that door closing, I had immediately lost over 65% of my business. I had three employees. And I remember walking out of that feeling completely shut out, in the natural, completely shut out in this business. And me and the other two guys with me, we prayed. And the decision had already been made. No other paint vendors, no other interior guys, paintless debt removal, various guys that serviced the automotive group, the automotive uh, deal, car dealerships. No more. The door was closed. And we just prayed that God would somehow open this door. I I, I couldn't afford to lose that much of my business. And so we prayed and we just cried out to God in, not in the natural, but now in the spiritual. And and we're we're appealing to now a decision that is in the spiritual, that's beyond the natural. And let me show you how the spiritual and the natural are connected now. For the next two months... God opened maybe two other opportunities in other dealerships unrelated to this automotive group, and God opened the door for us to get them as an account. In the meantime, for two months, I have made an appeal to the automotive group, to those who oversee it, and asked if they would please consider opening the doors to us, because I had not even known that they were doing this, and I found that there was actually a pathway to becoming a preferred vendor. And so they asked me to submit a proposal. Most people were giving a 10% volume discount. And and I feel like I was going to shoot myself in the foot, but I wasn't supposed to give that much. And so I, I, I put together a plan, and I offered them the plan, and they said yes. And suddenly, in one decision, all of these dealerships that I was servicing opened up again. And actually, when they opened up, the company was larger. And the reason is because I don't serve a God who is simply concerned about the natural and I've just got to do everything to build this business. God God looks at me and for whatever reason, he sees me as his beautiful bride, his wife devoted to him. He's the lamb who purchased me for himself to be the apple of his eye. He's my wall of fire around all that I am, and not just me, but all that I do in his kingdom, my family, 
providing for my family, everything that he has called me to. He's a part of that, and he's defending it. And so I've got to realize that as we pray, as we work, there is a very real element of this kingdom of God, but there is a very real spiritual dynamic that I had to see. And in those two months, I saw God working. I saw God changing the heart of a king like a water course. These weren't kings, of course. They were businessmen, but he changed their hearts. It's a passage from Proverbs, by the way. And I realized that I served a God who could do anything, that every impossible situation, he could turn it around, that he could not just turn the circumstances around, but he could actually change me. He would end up being the glory, it says in verse 5, within me. Isn't that what we read in Revelation 21? That God was going to be the glory and the splendor and the beauty in the city. But the angel said that the wife was adorned, excuse me, the bride was adorned beautifully. You see, God, Jesus himself, is working within us as his bride, beautifully ordained or adorning us with gems and jewels. Jesus is at work in your life and he's doing things in your life and he's creating more love and humility and gentleness. And he's the one working behind the scenes and all you're seeing are these struggles and difficulties that are really sufferings translating into greater character. Sufferings that are translating into now open doors of opportunity. Jesus is creating something in us as his bride, as the apple of his eye, in which we might look at ourselves and say, I I see now this love, but what Zechariah tells us and Revelation 21 tells us is that it's the glory of God in us. As I went through that struggle with this automotive group, that began a journey with me because I was coming to a realization that there was something in my life in the area of faith that was lacking. God wanted to grow my faith. He wanted me to believe for things, but that believing would always translate into action because faith has feet. And so I began to realize that God was using this to show me this amazing, miraculous God who was my wall of fire and now the glory within me. He was the one producing those jewels that were so beautiful. He was the one crafting and shaping like the potter does with the pottery. He was the one doing this. It was his glory. I want to ask you this morning as we close, what is God at work doing in your life right now? What impossible situation are you facing? Like our little children's story, poor Camila lost the opportunity to be adopted. She was 11 years old. She had lost that opportunity, at least so it seemed. That would be devastating. We face similar devastating situations that God, because he's that wall of fire around us and he's the glory within producing something amazing and we don't just live in the natural but the spiritual as well, he is working in us. He is working today in your life because you're the apple of his eye. 
You're the bride, the wife of the Lamb that purchased you for his pleasure, for his purposes, creating something amazing in your life. For me, at that moment, it was faith. He wanted to expand it and stretch it and grow it. And it was hard. It was scary. That's what God wants to do in our lives right now. Regardless of our difficult situation, he wants to step in as the glory in his kingdom to do something absolutely amazing in our lives. I want us to close in prayer right now. And I want us to just surrender that to him, to be able to see beyond the natural and realize, no, we have a God who is a wall of fire and the glory in us, who is doing something amazing. And allow him to do that right now in our situation. Father, Yahweh Almighty, you are the heavenly loving Father that loved us so much that you sent your Son. And you sent him to purchase us as your own. And regardless of our present situation, how hard it is, our enemies coming and seemingly attacking from all sides, that you are in control. And I ask you, Father, give us eyes, spirit eyes, to be able to see, spirit eyes that would see with faith that you're at work in these impossible situations and that you are wanting to do something so amazing in us because you love us that much. And I just ask you, Father, for every single person gathered in my home, watching online, praying right now, crying out to you right now, step into their situation and show yourself to be that wall, that consuming wall of fire around them, protecting them, and yet that glory within that is building something absolutely beautiful and amazing. And you do this simply because you purchased us for yourself as the apple of your eye. Show us and demonstrate to us now your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.